and welcome to Season 2, Episode 40 of Logicast. I'm Carl Robinson, CEO and co-founder of Logicata, and I'm joined, as always today, by my colleague, John Goodall. How are you doing today, John? Middling. I have two mouses in my house now, although one of them is a mouse and the other one is a cat, and I'd rather the one that was a mouse wasn't there. Mm. Can't you get them to play cat and mouse? I mean, it's under the floorboards. So, I mean, given the opportunity, yes, I'm sure my cats, well, you hear it moving and they just, the cats are just chasing it around because they can hear it and they know where it is, um, but they can't get to it. The upshot, however, is the mouse can't actually escape anywhere into a livable part of the house because it's come down like some boxing around the SVP from the loft, I think. Mm, so hopefully you know of, it'll yeah. just leave. Mm. Anyway, the good news is we've made it to 40 uh, which is more than you've managed to do so far in life, John. Uh, I've obviously uh, completely surpassed 40. And, yes, but uh, we're not holding that against you. I'm about to trigger into the next decade, but Logicast has made it to 40 episodes uh, in season two. Um, so that's quite a milestone for us. Uh, but uh, we're not here to talk about John's rodent infestation. Uh, it's one Logicast. mouse. It's hardly an infestation. <laughs> Well, you know, it only takes another one mouse and uh, it could become lots of mice. So, uh, but uh, yeah, we're not here to talk about John's potential rodent infestation. Uh, as uh, regular listeners will know, Logicast is an AWS news podcast. Every week I collate a list of AWS news, uh, which I send out in my AWS News Roundup newsletter. And then John and I pick a subset of those news articles that we'd like to talk to you about in a little bit more detail. So we do, of course, have a selection of articles that we'd like to talk to you about this week. Very difficult to make that selection this week because, of course, it's uh, AWS reInvent time right now. So the announcements have been coming thick and fast for the last uh, week or two and will continue to do so as reInvent progresses. In fact, it's the keynote today uh, on, well, on the day that we are recording this. Um, so uh, um, expect many, many more announcements to be coming out of the annual reInvent conference. But let's take a look at what we've chosen to talk about this week. So the first article is an article on the AWS news blog, uh, and it is a new feature uh, for CloudFront. Um, so the article title is Introducing Amazon CloudFront Key Value Store, a low latency data store for CloudFront functions. Bit of a mouthful. Unfortunately, <laughs> I had my teeth in, um, so I managed to uh, get all of that out. But tell us a bit about this, John. What uh, is the benefit of having a key value store uh, for CloudFront functions? Uh, just before I do that, it's worth mentioning that all five of the articles for today are going to be um, the back end of the pre-invent stuff because new cycles are funny like that. Um, so this is this is one of those. It, you might get a bit of noise out of it in reInvent, but you know, back end of the pre-invent stuff. Right, that disclaimer out of the way. Key value stores. Um, quick definition: they are, they kind of are what they say on the tin. There's a few of them in AWS, um, and arguably every database is a key value store anyway. But the obvious ones are things like Secrets Manager, SSM Parameter Store, arguably DynamoDB. Cool. All of those live in AWS Core, right? They live in the middle. They they do. That's just kind of where they are. CloudFront is a bit of a funny service because it doesn't live in the middle. It lives everywhere else. It lives at all the edge locations, as they're called. And that's not necessarily a local zone, but it will have some stuff in local zones. It lives at places where you can't directly deploy things to it. You can't say, I'd like a server in this edge location, please. Because if you wanted to do that, buy a server. You know, that's kind of what, what that 
is for. Cool. Why do you want a key value story in these edge locations? Well, you're constrained to the speed of light when it comes to um, moving data around your networks. And yes, that is speed of light. It's not in a vacuum. It's in a bit of glass, but it's really fast. It's like 200,000 meters a second in glass, I think. And it's 300,000 in a vacuum. So it's really, really quick. But it is a, it's a limit, right? You can't go any faster than that. So if you've got um, a CloudFront distribution, and you are serving your origin content out of London, and you have a user in Australia accessing it, and you thumbs up, and you want to um, <laughs> so distracting, and you want to do something cool with the CloudFront function. Maybe you want to do URL rewriting, or you want to dynamically change an image or something like that. Then your function has got to go all the way back to Central Core where you've got your things hosted to work out kind of what it needs to do and then send the data all the way back to the user again, halfway around the world. And that's not the best experience. What this is doing is putting a key value store in those edge locations so that your CloudFront function, which is also in the edge location, doesn't have to talk back to the central core to get the data it needs. And the example that they use here is a reasonably valid one. It's uh, URL rewriting. So this is something that's done pretty commonly. It's done in a number of different ways. It's done with um, a 301 and 302 redirect sometimes. Sometimes you do it um, with a Lambda function. Sometimes you do it on your DNS itself. There's a number of ways of doing it. But one of the things you can do is with the CloudFront function. That way it's probably the fastest because it's not going hitting a server, hitting another server, hitting another server, and then going all the way back, back up the chain. It's hitting the, orig the edge location and then responding. So it's much faster. And like I say, that's kind of the example they're using here. Um, and why do you want to do that? Well, maybe you're, again, in their example, you've gone from V1 of your blog to V2 of your blog. So you need to just change a backend URL so that you can restore, re retrieve slightly different content on the same public facing URL. Or again, with URL rewriting, maybe you want to be getting a different image from your um, local media cache, depending on where they are in the world. You know, you want local flag.png. You want to go and get your local flag. So it's for that kind of thing. It's it's not groundbreaking because it's just yet another key value store, um, but it's handy that they've put it where they have. I do have a couple of gripes with it because nothing's perfect and it's a new service and maybe they'll address them. The first one is you have to attach or associate, the right word, the key value store with the functions, right? So if you haven't said this function has access to this key value store, it will just bomb out and go, eh, I can't do anything, which is really annoying because I'd like a global key value store that I can just say, well, everything can just talk to that um, for my one application, for argument's sake. If you've got lots of applications or lots of functions doing different things, I can see the value, but this just feels a bit odd. And the second gripe I have is, why didn't they just give me an option in one of their existing key value stores to say, push this to the edge, like edge location uh, SSM parameter store? because they've already got the key value store functionality. Just let me push it to somewhere else, please. So is that something you could uh, write a Lambda function to do if I create a key value store here? Copy it over there? Well, you don't have access to the edge locations. That's kind of the problem, 
right? Mm. Um, with SSM Parameter Store, you can replicate between regions. With Secrets Manager, it's a global service, so they're kind of already there anyway. Um, but you have no direct access to control what is or isn't in an edge location beyond the couple of services that explicitly run there, CloudFront, CloudFront Functions, this new key value store. But like I say, what I like is a way of just saying, I want this to go to all of your edge locations, please. Well, it sounds like you should use your status as an AWS community builder to push that feedback back to the product team, because although we have a huge listener base now for Logicast, we can't guarantee that the product team are going to be listening to this episode. So uh, I think they might be a bit busy this week, if we're honest. Absolutely. Uh, they won't be listening to it today because they will all be at reInvent uh, pushing their, their wares. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's why I think you should feed that all back through the formal channels. But um, cool. Well, thank you for that overview, John. And uh, interesting to hear that you've got some constructive feedback for the product team. So uh, let's make sure we get that feedback to the team via the appropriate channels. Let's move I on to the next. I get better at doing that. I really, I really must because I just whinge and moan on this and then do nothing with it. Exactly. We have channels. Use the channels. <laughs> <laughs> Literally channels, Slack channels. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so let's move on to the second article for today then. Uh, and this is another uh, feature announcement, this time for CloudFormation. Um, so the title of the article is, well, it's not really an article, it's more just one of their little feature announcement things. Um, very, very short article. Um, well, this one's about AWS CloudFormation, simplifies resource import, with a new parameter for change sets. Um, so what's this one all about, John? This is quite handy, this is, and this is an advantage that Terraform has had over CloudFormation for a very long time. So let's, usual fashion, let's do a few definitions and then kind of bring everyone up to the same level. Right, CloudFormation, that is, I really need to stop counting on my thumb because I'm conscious it's going to thumbs up because I count <laughs> on my thumb. And it's, there we go, right. that's triggered. Um, yeah, I should stop doing that. Uh, right, CloudFormation is AWS's infrastructure as code service. You write either JSON or YAML, and it makes resources. Cool. When it was first around, and for a very long time, you couldn't import resources into your stacks, as they're called. It, it just didn't have a way of comprehending how to do that, right? Um, if, it would be, if it had been created by that CloudFormation template becomes a stack, it could manage it, and if it hadn't, it couldn't, and that was kind of an end to the discussion. It was one of the key advantages for Terraform, five years ago now probably, um, was that it could do that. And it's been able to do that from, I think, day one, where you could say through a somewhat convoluted command line command, this resource in my infrastructure code, code is actually that over there. You didn't make it, but I'm telling you that it exists please now manage it. And it would bring that into its state file and it would understand it and it would be able to work with it. And maybe it would want to recreate it and you have to kind of fiddle around with it a little bit to get it to not do that, but it could do it. It's a bit faffy, but it could do it. Then CloudFormation brought on the ability to import resources. So you could create a stack from existing resources. And that was kind of handy. That was. I didn't use it a lot because we're a Terraform shop and I kind of lean towards Terraform primarily for infrastructure work. But it was handy and it was there and they kind of brought it in. What they've done now is they have added a parameter to the create change set API. It's an API, but it's a command, right? When you deploy a CloudFormation template to make a stack, you run a couple of things. You can either do create stack or you can do create change set. And a change set is a way of saying this stack has X resources in it to start with 
and when I apply this change, here's the delta, and it will have y resources added to it to have z in total. Yeah. What this is doing is you can apply this new parameter to your create change set so that you can add resources to your existing stacks rather than having to just create brand new ones from them. That's really cool as well because that brings it much closer to feature parity with Terraform for this. Now with Terraform, you do it on a resource by resource basis. You do, you know, Terraform import, blah, 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 blah. So you can identify the resource. With this one, what it's doing is it's taking the logical name of your item in your template, in your YAML or your JSON file, and using that to see if it can locate something that's got a similar sort of name, and then it'll import that, which is, it's a way of doing it, sure. And I think it's trying to do it kind of in bulk rather than giving you the option of doing one resource at a time. Because listeners that have done this with Terraform will know if you've got to import one or two things, it's fine. If you've got to import a hundred, you're going to be there all day and it's really awful. So this is a way of doing that that's a little bit different, I think. Um, there's some caveats. So custom names aren't supported. Um, so a number of CloudFormation resources, the, the way that they are deployed and named is you will call your item in your template a thing you might call it i don't know user bob if you're making a user for argument's sake and then you could optionally give it a specific name so you could then have you know your your logical name is bob and your full name is bob smith it doesn't support you giving it that specific name it only works on the logical name so it will look for something that looks like the logical name because that's how it would have named it um, and that's really oddly specifically technical if you've worked with CloudFormation, you'll know what I'm talking about. It's it's useful. It's helpful. It's definitely a step in the right direction. Um, I'd love to see Terraform do that, to be really honest, where you can just say, go off and find everything that looks like roughly what I've called things and tell me about them. Um, and on the counterpoint, I'd love to see CloudFormation be able to import single resources. So different ways of, of attacking the same problem, I think. But this is definitely good stuff. Is it going to tempt people away from Terraform to use more cloud formation, do you think? I don't, if I'm honest. I don't think people pick one tool versus the other, weirdly, based on their functionality. And that's that's really a weird thing to say, and I get that. But we are, quote, at Logicata, we are a terraform shop and we default to using terraform for most things and yeah we're building some stuff with sar apps and we're building some stuff with um cloud formation where it's appropriate but generally we default to terraform we're not going to swap our defaults just based on the fact that you can import resources it's like a it's nice but it's it's neither here nor there um and the arguments i've had historically f with people for should you use cloud formation or should you use terraform the Terraform one has always been, I never bought it, but it's always been, well, it's provider agnostic and it can do lots of other things other than AWS. And yes, that's true. Like we've got Terraform modules for deploying Datadog monitors for argument's sake. That's, you know, that's helpful. But the fact that CloudFormation doesn't do that has never been a reason to not use CloudFormation. You know, CloudFormation, in my view, has never had a specific advantage over Terraform aside from the fact that you never ever get rate limited with cloud formation because it's not using the apis it's using kind of the backbone and doing it itself and the state management's a bit better but it's 
they're two tools that do the same thing, but it's it's like I don't know. Saying would you use a dashend for a gu- uh, livestock guardian dog just because it's very aggressive? Well, no, because it's still a tiny little sausage dog. So, are you uh, describing cloud formation as a sausage dog? Perhaps <laughs> a, a Rottweiler as a mastiff <laughs> analogy. <laughs> yeah, I don't know where that came from. I've been watching too much homesteading on TikTok. I think. Mm. Yeah, interesting analogy. Uh, uh, one more question on this one before we move on. Does it help us with Logizone? Ooh, are we allowed to talk about that? Have we just given away a product launch? Uh, <laughs> today, I'm excited to announce. <laughs> uh, it might. We can talk about it, it might. but not, it's, it's not a sales pitch, but uh, you know, <laughs> the product, the product uh, is uh, sits on top of uh, org formation, which... Uh, ultimately, uh, controls cloud formation. So, I just, mm. I was just yeah, no, so it might, it, it might very well because a number of the things that we implement cloud trial, guard duty, inspector, whatever people might already have in their accounts. So, the ability to import it into something might help with that. I don't know, I don't know though, because the org formation wrap kind of controls a lot of how cloud formation is called. So, it, it may be okay. Always uh, keen to find things that, that we can actually use. Uh, All right. So, uh, yeah, it could be interesting. Anyway, on that note, uh, let's leave the sausage dog behind and skip <laughs> on to our next article, uh, which uh, is another uh, AWS announcement. Um, and this one uh, was a post on the AWS security blog about how you can use multiple instances of AWS I am Identity Center. So I am Identity Center, of course, is AWS's single sign-on offering. We're a huge fan um, of using I am IDC uh, within all of our customer deployments. But why might you want to use multiple instances of I am IDC? Because I think typically in our use case, we're applying I am IDC at the org level, uh, and mm. we just use that Identity Center for all uh authentication across the organization so yeah curious as to why you might want to use multiple instances of imidc so primarily it's intended to support it says this in the article so i'm going to read it verbatim more or less uh, sandbox deployments of aws managed applications such as code catalyst which are only usable within the account and region that they were created in right so code catalyst is the thing that i got wrong the other day when we had johannes on and i got told off for being wrong about it because um, i mixed it up with a you know, application composer um but it's i think github but within aws and you're not far off it's got a kanban it does source control it's got um workflows and kind of all the rest of it and they integrated it with imidc brilliant i don't want to give people access to my entire IMIDC organization just so that they could log into the dev account and, and do some dev work, you know. And historically, how you got around that was IAM users. But IAM users are kind of on the outs now because of IMIDC um, and just general best practices around long-lived credentials and, and what have you. So this, I think, goes away to address some of those issues. Um, and I think it will end up being integrated in more and more things that are AWS, but don't live in the AWS console, like Amplify, like DataZone, like Code Catalyst. They don't live in the console. They live like near the console. So this, I think, will go some way to addressing the issues with authenticating for those things, where they've had like their own user auth and it's all been a bit messy. So that's it, short in, in short version. And the other thing is, you know, you can use it to provision users directly against accounts so that they can have access specifically to that account and not the whole org. And yes, 
again, you can kind of do that with IMIDC at the org level because you can put them in a group and that group can have access to just that one account. So the dev group can have access only to the dev account and the dev role in the dev account. But it's almost like, again, I'm going to use a really weird analogy here, trying to kill a fly using a bazooka. It's, it's yes, the fly's going to die, but you're going to knock your house down. It's it's too much. And yes, that's a reference from the third Terminator film, which is awful, but it's very quotable. <laughs> um so it's 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 that realistically it's it's a way of just being a bit more specific about where you're putting users into specific accounts um and they do talk about a few specific um options and it's you know trials for managed applications to work out if it supports your specific needs which is great or maybe you can't deploy IMIDC across your whole organization for one reason or another but you want to experiment with the aforementioned managed applications or you need to, to um, like I've just explained, have like a, a subset of users and you don't want them in the main account, if that makes sense. It does go on to talk about the fact that you can have users in both of them and they could be the same, they could be duplicates and that's a problem. And then they kind of give you a load of code to work out when that's a problem. The fact that they've thought about it and given you some, some I don't know if it's a Lambda or if it's, I did look at this a minute ago, Um Oh, cool. Where is it? Yeah, it's, it's it's basically a Python script. So you could run it as a Lambda. Or you could run it from your local or whatever. The fact that they've given you some code to work it out means that they've at least thought about it, but they didn't build it into the product offering to prevent you from doing that. And maybe that's by design such that your org level IDC instance has no knowledge or visibility of your account level IDC instances, and more specifically, the other way round, so that an account level instance can't do anything to the org level instance perhaps um so i mean it's giveth with one hand and taketh away with the other it's i'm able to do all of these nice new cool things but i've now got all these other caveats i need to worry about so it's like hey, i'm not sure on this one and again they go some way to addressing that by basically saying if you created your imidc in, uh, instance before effectively the date of that announcement which was about a week ago now um, then it's not turned on and you have to explicitly turn on account level instances or if it's created after this functionality was available here is a service control policy that you can apply at the org level to prevent anyone from creating account level idc instances problem solved and in terms of your previous question yes i will be implementing that because cool. just turn this off for our specific use case unless we get a i want to play with code catalyst please let me do that through this login method there's no point in existing it's just a, a risk that we don't need i have another question for you slightly off topic but uh, are you no longer using your logitech mx master 3 with silent scrolling wheel Oh, because I could hear a ratchety scrolling noise when you. When you're it's not the master. <laughs> it's not the master three. It's the MX Master uh, V1 Amazon Special Edition because I'm I'm cheap, um, and it was like forty five pounds special offer because they were getting rid of it. It does have a silent scrolling wheel, so I can scroll with no noise. Yeah, but you like uh, the noise. Well, what I like is. A little bit of a ratchet and then i kind of go on it aggressively to get to the bottom of a long page and it freewheels 
Well, we digress completely from uh, cloud uh, into mice, but uh, well, well, we, we, we were talking about mice earlier on in the uh, in the episode, so uh, we just seem to be getting drawn back to mice. Um, anyway, let's uh, let's move swiftly on. Which is actually what Dashens uh, were bred to kill, believe it or not, was mice. Oh, there we go. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's the whole conversation is about mice. Yeah. Um, but let's zoom out a little bit from uh, mice and uh, cloud tech into the world of data center tech. So our next article, while still about AWS, is more at the actual data center level um, rather than uh, at the console and service level. Um, and this one is an article on datacenterdynamics.com about how AWS is using reclaimed wastewater for data center cooling at 20 of its locations in the US. So occasionally we like to talk about data center tech because uh, we're geeks and we find it mm -hmm. cool. Um, but um, yeah, this one is all about how they're, they're using uh, reclaimed wastewater rather than drinking water to cool the data centers. Um, so uh, I, did, I had a, a good read of this one and I, I've got some questions about it as well. But what are your thoughts on this one, John? It's interesting. It is very interesting. And I agree with the premise. Let's start there. Um, Potable water, drinking water, is it's not a finite resource as such because you can always just retreat stuff and boil it and filter it and all the rest of it. But it is a resource that's not infinitely available 100% of the time. So if we can reduce our usage of, of potable water, um, and I keep saying potable because I like the word, if we can reduce our usage of potable water um, for things that don't need it to be safe for consumption, then that's great. It's brilliant. And this also very obviously ties in with AWS's previous announcements that we spoke about, about them being water positive by, I forget when, 2030, 2035, something like that. 2030, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it, it definitely ties into that as well, because if you are, rather than taking water out of the system, the system, and then putting water that's not safe for human consumption back in the system um that's obviously not going to help if you're taking water out of a different system that's already not safe for human consumption it's much more of a what do they call it a circular economy particularly in this case it's not an economy but it's like a circular it's a closed loop that's the word i'm looking for so that you're taking non-drinking water non-potable water using it for something that it doesn't need to be safe for consumption anyway sending it back to be treated again so that you can then use it again for your non-human consumption purposes so this is great i've got no concerns with this at all um you know it's like i said i've got no concerns with this at all it talks about bacteria and lime scale and chemical treatments and kind of all the rest of it um because yes i certainly wouldn't want to drink the water that's been cooling a cpu personally it's going to be full of copper amongst other things um mm. But I don't think it would work in the south of England where our water is so hard, it's basically a solid. <laughs> yes, lime scale problems. But one, <laughs> one uh, question I had about this, I mean, obviously it's very good for the whole uh, water positive agenda, um, but the article does mention that the water needs to be treated several times before it can be used. So, and I don't necessarily expect to be able to answer this, but it was just a question that sprang into my mind when I was reading the article. What does that do for the carbon neutral agenda if you're having to treat the water mm -hmm. several times before you can use it for cooling? Are we just kind of taking one problem and converting it into a different problem? Because it's not like the wastewater is used in its pure form of wastewater. It has to be treated before it can be used for cooling, perhaps not treated as much as if we were going to try and use it for as potable water again. Um, but uh, yeah, how much energy does that treatment process use? Well, I think the wastewater would be treated anyway. So it's. I think it's. it's 
negligibly different, to be really honest. I think it's negligible. Um, because it really depends on what the plant-based treatment method actually means. Because if they're taking foul water from um, houses that's got, I don't want to lower the tone, but all sorts of things that you might put down your toilet, then you're not going to use that to cool your servers down, are you? Let's be, let's be real here. People eat curry occasionally. If it's surface water runoff, because um, in the UK that is treated differently, um, certainly in the sewerage systems you have what's called grey water, which is like your surface runoff, and black water, and that's just what it's called, and that's contaminated water that's got waste in it. And they treat them differently. They, they don't go to the same places, they don't get the same level of treatment, because rain is clean, generally speaking. Your gutter isn't, but the rain is pretty clean. So surface water runoff is treated differently. So it depends what they mean by waste, I think, waste in this water. case. But yeah. yeah, but I think net, it's pretty negligible. Cool. Okay. Conscious of time. And we've got one more article to get through uh, in this episode. So this last article this week is an article on Forbes um, from Janakiram MSV, who is a uh, quite a well-known analyst in the space. And uh, he has made five generative AI predictions uh, for reInvent 2023. Um, so I guess we can just quickly skip through uh, each of his predictions. The first one is that we'll, AWS users will get an official AI assistant for cloud operations. So uh, basically, this sounds like auto, John. Uh, it sounds like next year, I might not need you, John. I can just ask an AI assistant to do what you do. Uh, kind of. So... Like I said at the caveat at the start, this is all kind of pre-invent stuff. Hence, that's happened. That that exists. That's happened. Um, you might recall I was jumping up and down about the fact that AWS bought Fig a little while ago. Um, they've integrated Code Whisperer with Fig and the CLI such that you can run, uh, I forget the specific term, but you can run a command and then tell it in long form what you'd like to do. Like, I'd like to copy files from this directory into that S3 bucket. And it will tell you the commands you need to run to do that. So this, that happened. Yeah. But I think he's talking about it going a step further and rather mm. than telling you the command you need to run, this is actually running it. Yeah, potentially. Yeah. Okay. Um, second one was a new category of managed database services based on vector databases. Um, I know nothing about vector databases. That's a new term on me. Is it, Do you know anything <laughs> about vector databases, John? Yeah, a little bit. I know about graph databases, and they have vectors as part of it, right? So a vector in a graph is you have nodes and relationships, and the relationship is the vector. Vector is a relationship. It's how one node connects to another one. Um, so it's just a way of of giving, as it as he says, providing LLMs with quote long term memory quote, so that they can remember the history of conversations and the relationships between various data points and. Um, give contextual inputs to avoid what they call hallucinations, which again is brilliant. It's brilliant that the uh, AIs hallucinate, which is when they make stuff up mm. without any hallucinogenics. Disappointing. <laughs> uh, so the, the third uh, prediction was serverless rag pipelines connecting various AWS data services to LLMs. Lots of TLAs. This was a new one on <laughs> me. Re retrieval augmented generation. Um, so, uh, yeah, what what uh, what might be the use case here? Um, I'm not. This is not really my area, to be honest. It's it's a way of getting data out of things like LLMs a lot easier, a lot faster. It's retrieval augmented, right? 
I think this has happened. I think this has been kind of, I think this was announced or I've certainly seen some, some noise about this. Yeah. Uh, in, in, I think it was in the step function space as well, which kind of, that makes sense. It, it, it sort of fits. I think the next one has, has happened as well, although maybe they've not announced it. So the, the fourth prediction was a new and, and more improved uh, large language model than Titan. So Titan, is, of course, is AWS's own LLM. Um, and there's a predict his prediction was that there would be a new uh, new and improved uh, AWS LLM. Um, so actually, no, I think I might be confusing this with some other announcements that there were some other third party LLMs had recently been integrated into Bedrock. So I guess this is slightly different and perhaps AWS are keeping that announcement back or have you seen something around this already? No, I haven't, but it would it would make sense, right? Because when they announced um, Bedrock and they started talking about Titan, the GPT models was it was 3 and 3.5. GPT-4 has come along and it's it's leaps and bounds better than, than previous ones. So Titan was kind of designed to compete with something that's been superseded, so they need to come out with something new. Yeah. Um, so uh, I guess uh, what, what AWS are hoping is they can take the lead in the AI arms race, mm. as it were, um, against uh, Microsoft and um Yeah, because they're definitely on the back foot with it. They're definitely on the back foot with it, which is rare for them. And then the last of these predictions was multimodal AI in Amazon Bedrock. So uh, what's multimodal AI? (laughs) So currently, if you talk to something like um, the older version of ChatGPT, you get GPT-3, 3.5, and all that can do, it's an LLM, and it can talk to you, and you can talk back, and you can have a conversation, and it can give you some results. GPT-4, I think, will also say you can talk to it and it will give you back either conversation or it can generate images using a different model because an LLM is a large language model. Um, It's not capable of producing images. You do something like, I think, stable diffusion for that to produce some images. And I've certainly seen some conversations that people have been having with GPT-4 where they kind of have this back and forth and they say, give me an image that looks like this. And then they give more context and more context. You end up with these ridiculous images of, of like hell spawn cats and that kind of thing where they've just gone make it angrier make it angrier so it's it's a way of having multiple models in the same interface as opposed to you having to hook that all together yourself i guess that's then similar to the um party rock application that last week's guest produced um i don't know if you saw that his uh multi-language trans- one, translation no. tool oh, i might be confusing it with something else actually but i did see one of the party rock apps which was bringing back uh, text-based results and image-based results um mm. so uh i guess pulling those from different models hence multimodal ai so yep again something that's kind of happening already um but uh, perhaps will be made uh, more of at reinvent so uh, that brings us to the end of our time um for season two episode 40 of logicast uh, reinvent is on as we're recording this so there's going to be a lot more announcements and we'll be back next week um with a reinvent special john and i are obviously sadly not at reinvent uh, but we will be having a guest on the podcast who is at reinvent uh, who's going to come back and uh, tell us about his experiences at reinvent and perhaps pick on uh, some of the uh, more significant announcements so stay tuned to our next episode for that but uh, in is the meantime, that the next one or the one after mm, i don't know uh, but uh, it will be a future episode so um soon it's soon listen to yeah. next week and just just keep listening <laughs> 
I think, I think we're recording two episodes next week. So, yes. uh, yeah, but uh, we will be having a, uh, a reInvent special where we'll be covering off some of the bigger announcements from reInvent with a guest who is currently at reInvent. So um, stay tuned for those future episodes. Uh, thank you again for listening. Uh, don't forget uh, to, uh, if you like the podcast, Share it uh, with anyone who you think uh, may be interested. You can, of course. Or not, you know, if they're not interested, give it to them anyway. Share it with them anyway, exactly. And uh, you or they can download the podcast from anywhere you normally get your podcasts or, of course, view it on YouTube. So thanks for listening. That was Season 2, Episode 40 of Logicast. We'll see you again next time. Cheers.